through this series called Last Words, looking at the last words of Jesus from the cross. And as we've been doing that, we've also been looking at stories of some famous last words of people throughout history. Uh, and there was a man named William Carey who was born in 1761. And William Carey was very ambitious even as a child. Uh, as a child, I'm sure all of you did this as well, he taught himself Latin. Anybody else? Anybody? As a, just teach it to yourself as a, as a kid in your spare time? You know, anyway. Well, he did. Uh, he taught himself Latin. Uh, he started working at the age of 14 uh, making shoes. And while he was making shoes, again, uh, he really took to languages. He taught himself several more languages just in the shoe shop as he was making shoes. He taught himself Greek and Hebrew, Italian, Dutch, and French. And then he grew up and he got married and had seven kids. And uh, he had quite a few friends, and some of those friends were involved in this church, and they needed somebody to preach, and so they asked the guy who knew so many languages, why don't you just come preach one Sunday for us? And so William Carey went and preached for their church, and soon thereafter became a pastor himself. And God planted within his heart this, this, really, this great desire for mission work. You see, it was different then than it is now as far as mission work, and it was different then than it was back in Paul's day. Uh, in Paul's day, obviously, Paul was a missionary, went all over, and today we've got missionaries all over the world. But back then, in the late 1700s, missionaries, it was not a common practice. Uh, it was a very rare thing, and if it was, if it did happen, nobody knew about it, kind of a deal. Uh, well, this really bothered William Carey. And so he, he preached sermons on missions. He put out uh, a book all about being a missionary and what that was like, and uh, he eventually founded an organization uh, that was a mission, missionary sending organization. He lived in London at the time. And he became the organization's first missionary. This organization still exists over there in London. But he was the first missionary, and he went to India uh, with his family. And another, uh, another guy and his family went there as well. Uh, but they went to India to be missionaries. And while he was there, uh, he learned the Bengali language where they were located in. He revised the Bengali New Testament. He printed the whole Bible in Bengali, which had not been done before. And while he was there, he also wrote basically the handbook for missions about what you do when you get to a new place, how to learn the language, how to fundraise, how to, uh, how to get in with the culture. And, uh, but while he was there, a fascinating thing in, in being this kind of passionate person to, to bring people to Jesus, it took him seven years to see the first person come to know Jesus. From the first time he walked into the city until the first person came to know Jesus, it took him seven years. Would any of you guys persevere that long? If you went from London to India, and you're in India with your family, young, his wife had a child on the way from London to India, and you don't see any fruit in the sense of somebody coming to Jesus for seven years, but he waited and persevered, and, and over the course of his ministry, he spent 41 years there in India, never taking a break, never taking a vacation, never taking a furlough, as they use in modern terms, uh, to go back home. He stayed in India for 41 years, and he saw 700 people come to Christ in that period of time. You see, William Carey was a man who loved Jesus and wanted as many people as possible to come to know Jesus. 
to the point where he was lying on his deathbed. William Carey, his last words as he he spoke to the people in the room, he said, when I am gone, speak less of Dr. Carey. And then he died. Because for him, it didn't matter if they spoke about him anymore. What matters is if they spoke about Jesus. That's all that he cared about. And Jesus, dying on the cross, he cared about people coming to salvation as well, obviously. He cared about the men who were nailing him to the cross. He cared about the people who had sentenced him to die in asking God to forgive them. But he's hanging there on the cross, and he made seven statements from the cross. The first three statements we believe he made right at the beginning of his time on the cross, and the last four statements, it seems like he made those statements right at the very end of his time on the cross, having been up on the cross for hours and we're looking today at statement number five from the cross. This is in the book of John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Uh, it's just two verses. John chapter 19, verse 28. So Jesus has been on the cross now for several hours, some uh, more than several, quite a few hours. And uh, it, it went pitch black, went dark over the whole region uh, beginning at noon, and he died at 3 p.m. And so from noon to three, it's dark. Middle of the day, it's completely dark. And Jesus is hanging there on the cross. It's almost three o'clock. It's almost time for him to die as he's hanging there suffering and bleeding. And he says this in John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And what's interesting about Jesus being offered the wine, I mean, really, this this wine was in a bucket, basically. And it was what the guards would use there um, to kind of give them energy as they stood there for however long it could have been. Um, They shove a sponge in there, probably a dirty sponge, put it on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. and his branch wouldn't have been very long. The cross back then, they would not have been very high off the ground either, uh, just enough to get his head above the head of the crowd kind of a deal. And uh, they offer it to him. But what's interesting about this is that this isn't the first wine Jesus was offered that day. Earlier in the day, Mark chapter 15 tells us he, he had been offered myrrh wine, wine that had myrrh mixed in it, which would have deadened the pain of what he was going to experience on the cross. And Jesus told those guys, no, I don't want that. I don't want to have the pain not be there. I don't want to lose my faculties. I want to fully experience what what I'm about to experience. So he turned that down. But when they offered him this, he took it. But he took it, like it says there in verse 28, to fulfill scripture. And there are several scriptures that refer to this very situation. Uh, Psalm 68, or Psalm 69, verse 3 Uh, It says in a prophecy, my throat is parched. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. In Psalm 22, verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. What's interesting about that one is earlier in this actual passage of Scripture was one we looked at last week. That was a prophecy saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And on down we see that his tongue sticks to his jaws and he can't speak because his mouth is so dry. 
But the actual prophecy referring exactly to this moment is from Psalm 69, verse 21. My throat, or, or for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So Jesus fulfills this scripture. You know, Jesus fulfilled every prophecy that was made about him, and this is one of them as he's about to die. And so he fulfills scripture in making that statement. I thirst, I am thirsty. And they gave him that to drink. It, just, it, it fascinates me, you know, by stating his need, being thirsty, Jesus voiced a need that he had. You know, and being thirsty, you know, it's not a want, it's not a nice to have. You know, thirst is a natural warning sign of your body. You need something to drink, just like hunger pains or, or you know, your stomach growling is a warning sign for hunger. You need that. And so Jesus voices this need and has his need met. Some of us are, are, don't do a good job at voicing when we have needs, right? Some of us voice when we have more than needs. Uh, but uh, Jesus, Jesus of all people, Jesus, who fulfills all of our needs, Jesus, who gave us breath to breathe, voices to the guys who nailed him to the cross, a need that he had, being thirsty. Because he actually, he still had a couple more things he needed to say. And he needed to be able to have uh, some lubrication in his mouth to be able to say them well. So he voices his need, you know, we need to have just as much freedom in voicing our needs as Jesus did. James chapter 4, verse 2, James writes, you do not have because you do not ask. You, do, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. In this context, he's talking about prayer. You don't ask God, you don't ask Jesus, so you don't have it. You need to pray for it. You need to ask him for it. Now, that statement, though, isn't a guarantee uh, that we will have every request that we make if it meets certain criteria. If we ask it, and, and we ask it according to the outline there in, in verse 3, um, don't ask wrongly, don't ask in pride, then we will receive it. Um, like, Jesus has to give it to us if it meets certain requirements. But that's not why James writes that verse. You do not have because you do not ask. He writes it, it really is meant to get us to look at the right place to get our needs met. Because Jesus is the great need meter. Jesus is the great need meter. He meets our needs. And so if we look to Jesus, we will find our needs met. Rather than looking at, at various other places, which all of us tend to do, we tend to look at certain different angles, certain different sources to meet our needs. And if all those other sources run out, then finally we will turn to Jesus. But that's not the idea behind not only what James wrote, but also in Jesus asking for one of his needs to be met, is we got to look to the right place, look to the right source, find our needs met in Jesus. And Jesus asking for his need to be met there on the cross, and the way in which it was met, I came to discover, and I mentioned this to Katie last night, something that I had never seen before in Scripture. I want you to go back to Exodus chapter 12. 
Exodus chapter 12. If you're using a Bible on the pew rack, this is on page 53. Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to look at this. A very interesting thing is going on here. Because Jesus dying, he's dying on Passover for the Jews, which is a very important day. He's dying on Passover. He's dying right at about middle of the afternoon, 3 p.m., which would have been the moment they were sacrificing the lambs in the temple. So when he dies on the cross, the lambs in the temple are dying as well. Same moment, same instant, same time. And if we go back to Exodus chapter 12, what's going on here is the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. They've been praying for centuries for God to release them from slavery. And so God sends Moses to help bring them out of slavery. Moses walks into Pharaoh and says, God wants the people to be let go. God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And God, and God said through Moses, well, if you don't do it, then some bad stuff's going to happen. And plagues started to come on Egypt. You know, God turned all the water into blood. Pharaoh said, okay, you can leave now. God turned all the water back into water. And Pharaoh said, well, no, you can't leave. So God sent more plagues. Flies came. Gnats came. All the animals were killed. Um, a hail came from the sky. Darkness over the whole land. Boils breaking out on everybody in Egypt. And every time one of those plagues would come, Moses would come to Pharaoh and he would say, before the plague came, you need to let the people go. And Pharaoh would say, no. The plague would come. Then Pharaoh would say, okay, y'all can leave now. Uh, the plague would leave and then Pharaoh would change his mind. Yeah, you can't leave. And then Moses would come back the next day. Well, you got to let the people go. There could be another plague coming. Pharaoh would say, okay, no. Plague would come. Pharaoh would call Moses. Okay, you got to take the plague away uh, and y'all can leave. He would take the plague away. He would say y'all could leave, and then he would change his mind. Yeah, y'all can't leave. And it gets down. It's happened now nine times. And God comes to, uh, uh, to Moses and says, okay, I want you to go into Pharaoh and tell him this is the last plague. And this is the worst one. The firstborn of everybody in Egypt will die if he does not let the people go. He won't do it. I've es it's escalated every single time. And he said no every single time. This is, this is the last one. And so Moses goes in there and tells him ahead of time, this is what's going to happen, Pharaoh. Your firstborn of everybody in Egypt, including you, will die if you don't let the people go. Just let them go. And Pharaoh says, no, I am not going to do that. And so Moses leaves. And the Lord comes to Moses and Aaron and tells them what they need to do in order for there to be protection over their firstborn in Israel, who are the slaves. Uh, Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month for you shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Now, this is the institution of the Passover meal right here. He's describing what's happening. You go and find a lamb. One lamb for every house, verse 4. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You, shall, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So he tells them, go and find 
male lamb, a year old, you're going to bring it into your house, you're going to slaughter it. Make sure there's an, everybody in the house gets enough to eat, but there's not too much for everybody to eat, just the right amount. Verse 7, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat, the two sides, the top of the, house, of the, of the door frame. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast, roast it on the fire with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Now, he told them to roast it. He said, do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted uh, with its head and with its legs and its inner parts. That was the fastest way they could cook it, was to roast it. That was the fastest way he told them, tells them to make unleavened bread, the fastest way they can make bread. He says, do everything you're going to do in this preparation as fast as possible. Because when Pharaoh says leave, you're just going to leave. Don't waste time packing up. Have everything ready to go. Have your go bag sitting there. You're going to be ready. He says go. You're out the door. You're not waiting around. Verse 10. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. Here he says, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. So the firstborn of all the animals, too. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you. This is key. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So he says the blood that's on the door frame of the house, on the two sides, on the top, the blood will be a sign. The blood will be a marker so that when the angel passes through Egypt, I will know those houses are protected. Those houses will find no destruction. There will be life in those houses tomorrow. Then he gives Moses some specifics down in verse uh, 23, excuse me, verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop. Does that sound familiar to something we just read a minute ago? We'll come back to it in just a second. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, a bucket. And touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So, God is, is outlining this Passover experience. I mean, it was an experience. The meal, the, 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 the angel coming, it was, it was an experience that they were going to need to remember on into the future. And every element of it was, an, it was a full representation of Jesus, as Jesus tells us when he institutes the Lord's Supper. But what we see there is the hyssop, the very same thing that they took the wine and the sponge and they gave it to Jesus. It's not coincidence. Nothing in Scripture is a coincidence. The fact that John, who wrote John, uh, who wrote the book of John, and, and mentioned that detail, the hyssop branch being there, he did it on purpose. Because the hyssop is used as a tool, a marker for the Passover lamb. You know, John mentions that hyssop with Jesus, who's bleeding and dying 
on Passover, the same moment, the Passover lamb is being killed in the temple. It, the hyssop marks, it marked the houses in Exodus 12. It marks us today. It was marking Jesus for everybody standing there. The hyssop marked for faith, for deliverance, uh, for protection, for salvation. It marks for life. When you believe, you are marked for life. It marked for life. And the fact, if any of those Pharisees who were standing there in front of Jesus dying on the cross had been in their right minds, they would have recognized what's happening. At that very moment, on that Friday afternoon of Passover, a hyssop being used as Jesus is bleeding to death at the exact same moment the lambs are being slaughtered in the temple, there would have been instant recognition of the significance of what's happening. You see, Jesus was being marked the same way they marked their doorposts in Exodus chapter 12. When you believe, you are marked by Jesus for life. But not just any life. Not just some random life. Life as God intended it to be. Full, eternal, abundant. John 10, 10. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Not just a little bit, not just you know, a little smidgen. That word abundantly there in, in the original language actually literally means super abundance. Not just a little bit, super abundant. Big time abundance there in John 10, 10. So you are marked by the blood of Jesus for a life lived super abundantly. Would you say that you live your life super abundantly right now? living your best life super abundantly but that means the super abundant life it's not a life lived distractedly not a life lived anxiously not a life lived fearfully or self-centeredly or pridefully it is a life lived super abundantly it's a life lived eternally Jesus tells us in John 17, 3, that eternal life begins when you believe. And so we have that eternal life now, that superabundance now. It's not something we have to wait to experience when we get to heaven. We can, as followers of Jesus, we can have it right now, this superabundant life. But then you have to ask yourself the question, okay, I can mentally get there. He says superabundant life, marked by Jesus for life when I believe, John 10, 10, have life, have it abundantly. Okay, I get it. But how? How can we live a life that's super abundant? How can we live a life eternally? What can we do that lasts forever? What can we do that, that never ends in this life? Well, Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never ends. He goes on in that passage and tells us all this other stuff's going to fade away. All this other stuff in this world that exists is going away. The only thing that will last on into eternity is love. Everything else is gone. It's all gone. All that will last is love. Love never ends. The answer then is, is love. How do we live superabundant lives? Love. Love is mentioned 684 times in the Bible. 684 I didn't go through and count them. I did a Google search. But it is. It's mentioned 684 times. That's a lot. A lot. 
It's almost as though God, in writing the Bible, is trying to give us some kind of emphasis about how we're supposed to live our lives, right? Love one another as Christ has loved the church. Love one another as I have loved you, he tells us. The the first passage I just quoted was from Ephesians 5. The second one was from uh, uh, John chapter 15. And so we have to understand something. If, if the key to the superabundant life is love, the key to the eternal life is love, then I may need to shift how I think about life. If the key to the superabundant life is love, asking myself, okay, will I love? Well, yes, I love my family. I, I, you know, I love some select people. I love you know, food. I love this, that, and the other. I love coffee. I, I love sleep. I, I, you know. But... Is that the kind of love he's talking about here, or is there something bigger? If the key to the superabundant life is love, then superabundance means no limitation. And if I put a cap on a limitation on where my love is to go, then I'm putting a cap and a limitation on the superabundant life he intends me to live. Maybe, let me suggest it this way, we need a new way to measure how we live. Maybe our, our, our form of measurement doesn't need to be how much money we have. Maybe our form of measurement doesn't need to be the, how many things we got done on our to-do list today. Maybe our form of measurement doesn't need to be how high I climbed in my career or how well my yard looks or whatever our form of measurement is in our minds when we get to the end of the day and we feel like it's a successful day. Maybe if the superabundant life is dependent upon love, maybe our form of measurement needs to be different. Maybe when we go to the store, we don't need to measure our, our trip to the store based on if how much we spent this time was less than how much we spent last time or on how fast we get in and out the door. Don't act like you don't think that way. I know I do. I praise Jesus just like you did when we got curbside pickup. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So that now we even get irritated when the time that we want to pick up our groceries isn't available anymore. Maybe that shouldn't be how we measure our trip to the store. Maybe how we measure our trip to the store should be about how many people we loved while we were in the store. Would that change our perspective a little bit? That might take a little more time. That might mean you don't go to the self-checkout because maybe the checker needs a little bit of love today. Maybe the guy you tried to avoid on the goldfish aisle, the cracker, not the animal, maybe the, the guy you tried to avoid needs a little love today. And God put you there at that time for a divine appointment. So rather than trying to duck the divine appointment, you invest in it. So maybe the measurement should be then, how many people did I love today when we get to the end of it? How many, if I go into the store, how many people can I love before I get out the door? Almost, I mean, you know, you do that with your kids sometimes. Whoever picks up the room the fastest wins. Whoever does this, they, they, you know, you you get whatever. Uh, Yet last night, um, uh, I think Katie had gone to the store and I had the kids pick up and I was doing that. But she, 
can't believe I'm telling you this. Uh, I bribed him, <laughs> but it was such a tiny bribe. And Katie looked at me when she got back and said, what? Uh, she's more generous than I am. I gave them each one chocolate chip. <laughs> While I had, you know, tin in my hand for myself, I gave them each one. Uh, but uh, so if, if you want generosity, go to my wife. So there you go. Um, she's far more, gen- more Christ-like than I am. Uh, there you go. But just confessing. We're just we're open and honest, transparent here. Confess to one another. James chapter 5. That's what I'm doing. Uh, just laying it out there. Um, but that should be our, our, our form of measurement is how much we love, how many people we love. Even the difficult people. You see, and maybe that's the key there too. Sometimes we feel good about ourselves because we've loved a lot of people, but the people we choose to love are the easy people. Maybe the things where we really need to push ourselves are in the areas where it's really difficult. And love is not, remember, we've talked about this before, love is not an emotion. Love is not how you feel towards somebody. Love is an action you do. It's an action verb in Scripture. It's something you do. It's how you interact with them. It's how you speak about them. It's how you speak about them in your own head. It's not simply ignoring them and leaving them to be. Love is going out of your way to intentionally invest in somebody else's betterment for them, for their sake, even if you don't get the credit for it, even if they hate your guts. And you all know people like that. And I can see it on some of your faces. Some of you, you had some some faces flash before your eyes right then. Sometimes we need to stretch those muscles the most because they've been the least used. And so here's the challenge I'm going to give you. I'm going to call it the love challenge. The love challenge. How many people, here's the question, how many people can I love today? So when you wake up every morning this week, how many people can I love today? Start, your base number is how many people are you're going to interact with, like people in your house, people at your job, your neighbors. That's, that's where you start, baseline. That's where you start. Like for me, there's six other human beings in my house besides me. It's spring break this week. Uh, you know, I might see a couple more people here at the church. So I got six in my house, a few more people coming up to the church, uh, you know, maybe two, three, four people. So I'll start my base number at 10. How many people am I going to love today? Let's start at 10. The temptation is to just stop at the base number. I, once I hit 10, I'm good. <laughs> I'm, I'm all loved out today. Like, I've got a love meter, and I, I, hit lo- I hit the cap, and like I'm exhausted. I'm tired of loving on people. I'm just going to go away and not love on any more people. But that's not the way Jesus intends us to, what he intends us to do. As we see in Scripture, every single time Jesus tried to get away from people, more people showed up. He didn't just you know, do the Heisman and push them off. He intentionally invested at those who still showed up for the interruption. Go out of your way to love people, even people who interrupt you. Love, that's the love challenge. How many people can I love today? How many people, sitting in the green pews, walking on green carpet in a sec, how many people can you love touching green fabric before you get out of this room? Make it a challenge. Sit next to the person. I bet I can love more people than you. 
See how many you can love before you get to the bed. That means word of encouragement. That means a hug around the neck. Uh, that, that, that means uh, doing something intentional, it's, uh, you know, a spoken word of, of uh, kindness. How many people can you love today? How many people can I love today? How many people's day can I make better? How many can I make better? John 15, 13, Jesus said this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. What's interesting about that is you can look at your life and say, yeah, okay, I'll lay down my life for my friends. But in Romans uh, uh, chapter 5, Paul said that Jesus died for us while we were still Christ's enemies. So if you take what Paul said in Romans 5, he died for us while we were his enemies, but greater love has no one than this, that, he, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Everybody was Jesus' friend, even his enemies. He considered his enemies to be friends, and he died for everyone. <clears throat> Jesus' love knew no bounds. Jesus' love didn't stop when somebody gave him a, a dirty look. Jesus' love didn't stop when somebody said something negative about him. Jesus' love didn't stop when he was tired. Jesus' love didn't stop when he didn't feel like it. Jesus' love didn't stop ever. It kept going and going and going. And aren't we all thankful for that? So that's the love challenge. How many people can I love today? And the greatest love there is is the love of Jesus greatest love there is, is the love of Jesus. He is the greatest demonstration of love. He is the greatest example of love. He is the greatest love in pouring it out for us in existence. The world will be a vastly better place if everybody loves more. The greatest demonstration of that, Jesus. So how can we love more? Imitate Jesus. Know Jesus. So ask yourself in the room, do you know Jesus? Do you know his love? Maybe you don't feel very loved sometimes. Jesus loves you. No matter who you are, where you've been, no matter what somebody said to you, no matter what you did last night, Jesus loves you. I know he does because he loves me. But I also know he does because he said it. And he demonstrated it by dying and raising from the dead. Jesus loves you irregardless of anything else. He loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. Eternal life forever. And we can't really wrap our head around forever. And it's a long time. And we can know that long time when we know Jesus. So I ask you now, do you want to know Jesus? Do you want that love? Whether you're in the room or you're watching online, do you want to know Jesus? Just believe that he is God's son, that he came and died so all your sins would be forgiven, and he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And that's it. You believe that simple sentence, and you're saved forever. Forever. You can't undo your salvation. Because, spoiler alert, you're not more powerful than Jesus. He saved you, and so you can't undo it. 
Scripture says he holds you in his hand. You can't be pried out of the fist of Jesus. He's got you in his grip because he's got the whole world in his Got the whole world. You're going to be singing that now forever. Jesus has a hold of you if you believe, and he's never going to let go, ever, ever, ever. You can't undo what he already did. You're saved forever. So will you believe today? Will you accept the love of Jesus today? And then will you go out and say, who can I love today? How many people can I love Today, What divine appointments has he put on my schedule today that I did not see coming, but I know he put them there because they need Jesus, the Jesus that is in me. How many people can I love today? That's the question. 